My name is Jeremiah Freights, and I'm uh, one of the co-founders of a band called The Lumineers. I play piano and drums for the band, and uh, I write all the music with the singer Wes. And uh, I just recently moved to Torino, Italy, and that's where I'm doing uh, this interview right now. So it's pretty cool to be uh, across the ocean or across the pond, as they say. Well, there's no real need for me to introduce this week's special guest here on Show on the Road because Mr. Jeremiah Freights did so beautifully himself all the way from Italy. But if there's anything I would like to encourage this week is to try and find music that brings you a little peace. And while you can probably tell that I'm a songwriter who is obsequiously obsessed with the winding wonder of words, 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 I'm finding there's only one way I can truly block out the cacophonous chaos of postmodern, not-so-roaring 20s life right now. And it isn't by meditating or journaling or going to the acupuncturist on Wednesdays to align my chakras or drinking more water or drinking less gin and tonics though I'm trying to do all those things. What I've realized recently is that there is just one thing that can still my heart and calm my racing mind like a mysterious medicine. It's listening to piano music. Just the piano and the air and nothing else. It's simply my favorite thing. And happily, Jeremiah has created a little droplet of dreamily pianoed piece for us to dive into this week. And all I can say is I'm grateful it exists right now. I've always been fascinated by pianos. I remember watching the guy at the mall playing above all the stores like Hot Topic and The Gap, and all the kids would be shopping, and I'd be standing watching this old man play Mozart under the echoing ceiling. When I see a piano sitting in a room by itself, I'm drawn to it immediately. My fingers have to play it. And why? Maybe it's a portal to all musical possibilities, a majestic, hard-shelled creature who can never be fully tamed by the human mind. It is the Mount Everest, the photosynthesis, the glowing, life-giving sun of all instruments. I can remember standing in Mozart's studio apartment in Salzburg, Austria, and almost hyperventilating, looking at that small wood instrument tucked innocently against one wall. For Mozart, it was a tiny orchestra waiting to be conducted. And throughout history, it's where composer deities like Beethoven and Gershwin and my heroes Chopin, Nina Simone, Carol King, Dr. John, Oscar Peterson, Ben Folds, and so many more created so much of humankind's greatest art. I did take blues piano lessons for a few months in high school, but was too intimidated to continue. But in a few weeks' time, something amazing will be happening around here. A nearly forgotten family heirloom piano made in 1918 out of luscious mahogany will mysteriously arrive on my doorstep, carted across the country to be played by these lonely hands at last. And maybe this year, I will begin again. I'll try and climb that mountain one more time. Maybe it's fitting that I'm talking to Jeremiah Freights today about his piano record in Torino, Italy, as the piano as we know it was invented by Bartolomeo Cristofori in Italy around 1700 as the fancy next model of the harpsichord allowing musicians superior feel and control, if he only knew. If you're listening to this show right now, you're probably waiting for me to ask Jeremiah about his pretty cool day job, which as he mentioned at the top, is playing drums and piano in the Denver-born band The Lumineers, arguably the most commercially successful acoustic pop group of the last 20 years. Indeed, I can pretty much guarantee you have found yourself accidentally singing along to the romantic stomping earworms like Ho Hey or Ophelia as they have both been streamed over 500 million times each. And when Wes and Jeremiah and their scruffy little crew self-released their confessional and warm-hearted self-titled record in 2012, the two friends from Ramsey, New Jersey could never have imagined that they would have a full-on chart-topping hit on their hands. Most of us play acoustic guitars and harmonize with our friends and hope we sell 5,000 records. The Lumineers saw their first record, which they made themselves, no label, go triple platinum. That's three million records sold, which simply never happens. Soon they found themselves opening for U2 and Tom Petty, placing songs in The Hunger Games and Game of Thrones, selling out Madison Square Garden twice, and best of all, they filled their favorite Colorado venue of all time, Red Rocks Amphitheater. Before the pandemic slowed them down, the Lumineers were bringing their same acoustic spirit to a full-on stadium tour, coast to coast. But alas, all that rock and roll bombast is paused for now. And in the meantime, I hope you can slow down with me a bit and pop on this piano record and forget everything for a little while and take a deep breath. Lord knows we all need it. 
Thanks again for listening to this program, friends. As always, please share this podcast with your comrades and review us on iTunes. We cannot grow if you don't do that. And don't forget to check out our Instagram at Show on the Road Podcast, where you can see special acoustic performances and videos of our cross-ocean interviews. But enough from me. I said I would make this intro short, and I lied. Again, what can I say? I worship wantonly at the alluring altar of wonderful, wonderful words. Okay, back to our talk. Me in California, Jeremiah and Turin, recorded late last year. Here we go. Yeah, we're, uh, God, what are we, 12 hours apart, 10 hours apart? It's 9 a.m. here in L.A. That's amazing. So, yeah, it's a nine-hour time difference because I just moved from Denver, and I know it's eight-hour time difference because I remember the agony of the long-distance relationship when I was dating my my Italian girlfriend, and the eight hours is uh, no easy task because it's like a a full night of sleep. So it really, that amount of time is... um, Ironically, if it was a bigger difference of time, it would almost would have been easier. Like, but eight hours is difficult. So, yeah. How did you decide to make the leap permanently to Italy? So, to make the decision to to permanently move to Italy was a pretty easy decision mentally. Um, I always wanted to live in Europe, and when I met my met my wife, um, who's from Torino, Italy, she was born and raised here. Um, we always wanted to, you know, potentially move. To, to here, but it always felt like kind of a pipe dream. And then just because um, working with my sort of partner in crime, Wes, the singer of the Lumineers, you know, we write all this music together. But now that we have uh, three full Lumineers albums done under our belt, I think that we felt more confident in our ability to write, you know, long distance. And also now, you know, me and my wife, we have a two and a half year old son, a, a boy, and uh, we just felt like it was time to, you know, have a change of scenery. And, uh, yeah, we're really happy over here. And your wife had uh, a hand in the title of your solo record that we're going to be talking about, Piano Piano. And I love that idea of uh, different languages having different meanings for things. You know, those of us growing up playing classical music, you know, when you play something piano, it's like you're playing it sort of soft or delicate, you know. And the album that you finished uh, called Piano Piano is this beautiful instrumental record where you have these two different pianos at home. One that is an old school, almost scrap piano that has this very um, rustic and kind of broken sound that's very lived in and warm. And then you have this other Steinway that's bright and and new uh and the interplay between those and then the strings and even an orchestra that you brought in uh is just a beautiful cinematic work and um your wife sort of had this idea to call it piano piano as like something that unfurls slowly through time right so for me the name piano piano just this idea that it translates um literally into little by little in italian it really was just, oh, that's that's the title. You know, when you hear something that just you feel like is right, that was the title. And it sort of played into this idea of also piano, piano in English, meaning just two pianos. Um, for me, this album's been in the making for about 15 years. Um, not literally, but actually some of the ideas are over 13 years old, one in particular. And... Um, I have these two amazing pianos at my house in in Denver and they're still there. And uh, one has been nicknamed Firewood by my piano teacher (laughs) or rather my piano tuner, not my teacher. And uh, the other one is a beautiful Steinway uh, grand piano. And I loved the idea of, um, for me when, you know, thinking about this album and thinking about how I wanted it to feel and how I wanted it to sound, I wanted to kind of tread that fine line between it feeling like people are right next to me on the piano bench, listening to me perform and having that sort of raw, exposed, vulnerable sound. And I also wanted people to kind of get, you know, washed over with some really high fidelity, 
high production value sound. And I wanted to walk that, you know, fine line. I didn't want it to be all high def grand piano and bright. And I didn't want it to be all really lo-fi kind of grimy scoundrel type piano. I wanted both of those things on there. So the songwriting was its own thing to tackle. And then sort of painstakingly, you know, making these decisions along the way. Well, okay, I have, I probably had 30 ideas, let's say, on a dry erase board. Sifting through all those ideas was one thing. And then the, the second part of that challenge was, okay, well, which one is your firewood and your grand piano? And sometimes I'd actually record an idea that I thought was meant for the grand piano and it just wouldn't feel right. It felt like the character was was gone or dead or something. And I would take the computer and all the mics and all the, you know, cables and stuff and I'd go downstairs to firewood and I'd record. And um, usually nine out of 10 times I got it right the first time. And... If I, you know, made the decision to re-record, then that would also be the right decision. So um, doing that all in my house, too, was a little bit of a pain in the butt at times. But it was that extra amount of work, um, in my mind, paid off, you know, big dividends for the final product. feels like these songs are snapshots of your domestic life. Like you said, you can almost feel people watching from just behind the piano bench or like over your shoulder. And you can almost hear your wife making, you know, dinner in the other room and the dog Maggie going back and forth. Uh, And it feels like a field recording that is then elevated into uh, a cinematic backdrop which I think is really interesting. You know, a song like Chili uh, for me almost could be like a deleted scene from Amelie, you know, like the French film. That, I love Amelie. I take that as a huge compliment. I know, love Amelie. That's cool. Yeah, well, this like whimsical piano that then is is also very melancholy and you bring in the cello and the strings and it feels like someone kind of running away like out of their life. And it's always a bit of a, a tricky thing to dive into songs that have no lyrics. You know, I'm a word person first, but it actually is a good way to clear your brain and sort of dive into what the instruments are saying poetically. Because we don't focus on that a lot of times as word people sometimes. I'm like, well, yeah, there's a cello, but I'm not listening to that. I'm listening to the hook. And this is like the hook is the cello coming in. what you mean and I, I love the idea of uh like with the lumineers i mean a lot of it is predicated on music usually comes first but then there's like oh there's going to be singing there's you know we're in a, a this band like there's going to be singing there's going to be words and then even the song title eventually will dictate sometimes the instrumentation and vice versa um and obviously the lyrical content will time will, will a lot of times dictate the instrumentation so you know if it's a sad lyrical song you're probably going to stay away from like a peppy upbeat piano or something like that so with this album piano piano it was totally different in that yeah i knew there was going to be no lyrics and i didn't want any singing obviously i just wanted to be you know mostly revolving around a piano so that was tricky at times to be like well what (laughs) what's the focus i mean the right hand is going to be this melodic thing but a song like Maggie was really difficult and gave me easily the most difficulty because I had this, I think it's in 5-4, I'm not entirely sure, I think it's in 5-4, but it's this very um, sort of, you know, strange time signature piano on the, this piano line. And I just struggled with the melody, finding the melody, it just took me forever to find that. And without that, I feel like the song was never actually, it was, it got deleted off the album many times because without some sort of melody to take the place of what words would feel, um, it felt almost impossible to work on some of these songs. Chili, on the other hand, was, I would say, in a much easier song to work on and in some, some regards more fun because um, I always wanted to make a song 
coming starting from a piano that really looked at space. Um, the guy, you know, that guy John Cage, who's incredible, he, he talked about this idea of don't interpret it as negative space, but as a positive void. And I always took that to mean, you know, use the space as intention, use the lack of your decision making, so to speak, as intentional lack of decision making, like actually feel the space and think of it as a positive void. So the beginning opening chords, um, it, it was hard too. like I, I would hit the chord and have a long sustained pedal and you know, these spaces between all these chords, it was quite difficult at first to actually, you know, take a deep breath and actually lean into that space. But then eventually it became not addictive, but maybe it, it was this weird, strange sort of high that came over me that absorbed into my, you know, my blood when working on that song of the space was more thrilling than sometimes the notes I could ever conjure up or something. And that song was really, really revolved around how much space can I get away with? And then when I do go to the busier parts, that dynamic shift would hopefully, you know, be more potent because there's so much positive void or spa negative space <laughs> uh, preceding it. So, you know. Is there a narrative storyline that comes into your head when you hear Chili, that song? Do you feel like there's a scene unfolding in some, like, movie theater in your mind i get instantly taken back to my like literally right back to the room where i recorded it and when i first hear that chord um i think if you listen with headphones right before that chord starts you can hear an airplane and i remember there was an airplane flying overhead and i just thought i'm just going to record anyways and it was interesting because i was recording i started in april and that was when the United States really started to go down into lockdown and quarantine because of COVID reasons, mm. obviously. So a lot of the traffic had subsided and a lot of the planes had airplanes overhead in my house in Denver had gone away. But there was a lot of things that, you know, when I listen to Chile, I get instantly drawn back to the movie that was <laughs> making this album and recording that song, frankly. Um, it was me and my wife. Uh, we had a two-year-old in the house with us, Tommaso, our son, and we had um, a golden retriever named Spaghetti who likes to bark and try to harmonize when I play the piano. And then I can't even make this up. Literally right next door to our house, there was a house being built, a house being constructed. So doing these takes, sometimes I do, in my opinion, I do like a perfect take where I felt, oh, I did everything I wanted to do and I executed it perfectly, right. the right dynamics. And I'd be holding that long sustain and about four or five, six seconds after I hit that chord, you'd hear like a huge cement truck drive by or an airplane that was a little bit too loud for comfort, you know, or, or my son, you know, he's a two-year-old, maybe crying or playing in the other room, these types of things. So, um, that's kind of the film that unfolds <laughs> in my head. When I hear that opening chord, it just, I think for the rest of my life, I'll just get, you know, transported back to being in front of that Steinway. And um, it's kind of beautiful in that way. Well, we're all sort of our own Alan Lomax field recorders right now. Like we're stuck at home mostly and they're, we're going into another lockdown basically in LA County right now. And we're forced to create, these home studios in our outdoor yards and in our living rooms and the world goes on regardless of you trying to record <laughs> your magnum opus. And, you know, I, I've been creating these songs with a, a new little group that we're just calling patio club because that's the only place we're allowed to meet really outside. And I love it. There's this little airport that's, you know, about five minutes away by the beach here in LA and every like 20 minutes, there's like an old private airplane that sounds like a world war two fighter, like going overhead. And we have to like, almost like use that as part of the song, you know, where like there's this weird find the key of the plane trail or something. Yeah, It's like, and you're like, Ooh, I think that was in G sharp. See the thing that <laughs> I love that. And the thing I like about that is that this whole experience is forcing us to be more, I think self-sufficient. I think people are going to become their own engineers and their own. Right. When I heard a plane overhead, 
I probably realized, okay, maybe I have like 37 minutes now to record. Or when my son Tommaso took a nap, I realized maybe I have an hour or two to record. So this airplane is like a metaphor. It made me use my time, I think, so much more wisely. I think, don't get me wrong, like I love being in a quote unquote real studio. And I really yearned for that many times throughout the process of making Piano Piano. Yeah. Like for sure, I really wanted to be in a real studio and doing that thing because I love that. And, um, But I think because of these extraneous noises and these things occurring around me in my environment, it really forced me to use my time more wisely. So that wasn't necessarily a bad thing, you know, but it was, yeah, I like, I love the idea of patio club and you should really find out what key the particular planes are in and be like, Oh, the C sharp's coming at around noon. And yeah. <laughs> so let's go back a little bit. Uh, you and Wesley got together. We are in New Jersey, I think, right? Around 2005. Yeah. So Does we were sound right. Yeah. Born and raised. In, yeah. Born and raised. We both were born and raised in Ramsey, New Jersey, in Bergen County of New, yeah, New Jersey. And uh, we knew each other growing up, actually. So I was friends with his younger brother, Sam, and Wes was friends with my older brother, Joshua. So we, we knew of each other growing up. We are about three or four years apart in age. And I was always like the younger brother friend, you know, to him. And he was always like my older brother's friend. And we didn't really like know each other that well growing up. But we even went on a couple of trips like... I think they had a house in Vermont that we went to a couple of times and, you know, like our families did stuff together and that was cool. And when Wes graduated from university, he came back to Ramsey to start a band actually. And he asked a mutual friend of our, ours named Justin Papp. And, uh, he said, Justin, do you want to, you know, start a band? I got some originals and I'm trying to do some covers and stuff. Um, and at the time, believe it or not, me and Justin, we were making rap and hip hop instrumental beats, like just really? instrumental stuff. And that's, yeah, that's what I wanted to do for a living. I really looked up to Timberland and I really loved listening to rap and hip hop, particularly like lyrics and words. Not so much today at the age of 34, but when I was 17, 18, 19, words and lyrics kind of went in one ear and out the other. And um, I really loved just the musicality of, of certain things like drum beats in particular. I really was enamored with drum beats and, you know, trying to do that. And the stuff we were doing was not very good at all, but it was really a lot of fun. <laughs> and so long story short, uh, Wes came back from college and said, Hey, Justin, you want to start this band? And Justin said, yeah, not without Jer. I'm Jer. So uh, that's how it all start- started. And we had a band and we did, you know, a lot of covers. We had some originals that Wes brought in first, and then we started writing together. Um, you know, that was essentially the beginning of the Lumineers, and that was about 15 years ago. So it's pretty wild looking back. Um, 15 years writing with Wes. Yeah. I mean, that self-titled record came out, what, t- 2012. It just sort of felt like it went everywhere at once. And for people making folk music and roots music like I was, it was like a ray of hope that something could be heard on a mass pop level scale, finally, with real instruments and like harmonies and uh, roots instrumentation, you know. She'll lie and steal and cheat and beg you from her knees, make you think she needs it this time. She'll tear a hole in you The one you can't repair But I still love her, I don't really care The warmth in the music that you guys were creating where it felt like we were a part of your family or something, that we were getting this intimate conversation musically and... That's something that I think yeah, is very sure, hard to sure. achieve, uh, even if you're just playing acoustic music. It, it <laughs> feels like it's lived in, and you guys uh, captured something that's it's really hard to explain. I mean, that was a self-made record that became a pop hit, which is almost unheard of still. And that was sort of an amalgamation, Ho-Hey as a template, or the whole album as a template, was if you do the math, you know, we've been in a band 
writing music together for 15 years, but that album came out about eight years ago. So if you do the math, um, I think Tom Petty, I think it was Tom Petty who said your first album is your first like 20 years of greatest hits. And then your second album <laughs> is like, you're kind of screwed. You only have two years to write your second album, but your first album, you have like 10, 15, 20 years to write, you know, and that's literally what happened. I mean, if you do the math, the first self-titled debut album is probably like our greatest hits from seven years of writing together. And we went through many genres. We went through many different styles. And I think for me as the, as the quote unquote drummer of the band, I think slowly drum set and drum beats. Um, it was like, I got it out of my system or something. I mean, I grew up after listening to Beethoven, I really got into like Metallica and dream theater and planet X and really like, complicated, crazy beats. And I loved like tool, especially I really loved complex tool, uh, complex, complicated, heavy types of beats. And I think that all that drums I got out of my system or something. And then, um, when it came to writing, I think I just looked at the song, like, well, what does the song need? And I think the same with Wes, even though he was the singer and the guitar player, he would look at the song too. as like, what does the song need? So it was almost like we had, two producers in the room instead of like, well, I'm a drummer. This song needs drums. So a song like, Oh, Hey, and actually I should give credit where credit's due. Um, my buddy, this guy, Chris Bada, um, he, he said, you know, at one point he said, did you ever think about just trying to be like a three piece and instead of an electric bass, maybe your guy's sound would benefit from an upright bass. So the original idea was to have me on drums, Wes on guitar singing, and then we were going to try to find an upright bass. But then the practicality of that was pretty bad because, you know, we had a Ford Windstar and we didn't want to travel around with an upright bass. They're so big. And we thought, well, why don't we try to find a cello, a happy medium between the <laughs> it's electric a bass. bass. Yeah, it's a smaller <laughs> bass. So that was the kind of idea. And that's what we had, you know, we had a cello and then we wanted to expand the sound. And now I think there's about six people on stage, five or six of us on stage now. Um, me on drums and piano, there's stealth on piano mostly and guitar. We got Wes singing, Byron on bass, Lauren Jacobson on violin. And then uh, mm. Brandon on like auxiliary miscellaneous guy. He plays every instrument. So yeah, there's six of us. And I think that whole album, we just, in our minds, we wanted to make each song like the, its own island, its own, you know, separation from each other. So, you know, the classic criticism of any band is that, oh, all the songs sound the same. But I think, you know, I was proud of that first album that I think we did a lot with a little, a lot of the chords were similar, you know, a lot of starting on C majors and G major type chords and really, really basic fundamental stuff. But, you know, I kind of would argue that to write a simple song that can affect people is almost, is more of a challenge because if you just want to come up with some crazy, like 15, eight time signature, and then there's nothing wrong with that. That stuff's awesome. Don't get me wrong. I guess what I'm trying to say is to make simple music though, that can impact people. I, th I find it really challenging. And I, that's, that's something I really love about being in this band is that, you know, striving to be minimalistic and minimal and seeing where that can take you. And it's almost akin to like Italian cooking or something, you know, you get some like fresh tomatoes, some fresh cheese and just like some olive oil and maybe some salt <laughs> instead of all this shit, <laughs> just, you know, in a dish. And, uh, so yeah. Let, let's cut to the most important thing. What did you make for dinner in Italy last night? Well, I've, uh, I've been living, we're on full quarantine, full lockdown here in Italy. And I'm trying to think again. Yeah. Again, unfortunately it's, it's, uh, Oh man. Yeah. I think it just went from level red to level orange. Red of course is the worst. Um, I think it just went to orange. So, and I, I just flew here, um, about 10 or 12 days ago, something like that. So I'm not actually allowed to leave the house at all for any reason. I'm in quarantine until the end of Sunday night. So that's been its own challenge. But, um, you just have to do podcasts exactly, all the time. Yeah. That's the only Sometimes thing. Sometimes that's to actually do. been true. So I'm feeling well-versed in, in the podcast forum, but uh, I'm living with my wife and son, of course. And then we're at my wife's parents, uh, lovely Vivina and Gianni and uh, Vivina cooked for us some cacio e pepe, cacio e pepe. Um, and it was delicious. Classic. Yeah, it was insanely good. And just I'm super, super spoiled being over here with having 
she's basically an unpaid chef. She's an incredible cook and uh, classic Italian like cooking, and I, I'm in heaven. So it's interesting because that progression from the first Lumineers record to Cleopatra, which took four years. I mean, that's a pretty big gap in between there. Yeah. But it, it goes from sort of this intimate record about sort of personal struggles and love affairs within this group of friends to this like epic poetry. What was the progression between those two records for you? I think for me, it was, uh, it, w- it was difficult in that the reason that there was a four year gap was that we were on tour so much that we probably took off. I don't even know. I mean, maybe we had six months. I mean, we went on tour. The whole tour lasted about three and a half years, believe it or not. I think we went to London, England. It was like six or seven different times in one year. So really let that sink in. It was six or seven different gigs in one calendar year. It was like, we really, we toured ourselves into the ground and I don't know if that was, well, it's hard to say no when it's all happening so quickly. Yeah. And Hey, do you want to do a bigger gig in London? Yeah, sure. And then, you know, four or five times down the road. Yeah. You just kind of say yes to these amazing opportunities. And for us, you know, things like playing Europe, the idea to play Europe, England, France, wherever in Europe, that was a 10 year plan for us. And I think for me, I thought that we were going to be a band four or five albums in people would be like, Oh, that early stuff's pretty cool. And this band's pretty cool. And I I didn't think what was going to happen or what did happen was going to happen. I just thought that people will like discover us. It'll be a slow burn. We'll be this <laughs> like little submarine. We'll be this like little submarine, like, like chugging. We're going to be chuggers, you know, chugging along I, I, like a cruise liner or something like really slow or like a barge. Maybe a barge is a better parallel metaphor. And uh, so when it came time to actually, we had to force album too because we did so much touring. I remember we finished in South Africa in December, I want to say of 2014, I think. And then we took like two weeks off for Christmas and then, um, you know, January 1st, probably started writing Cleopatra, wrote it for mm. six months, recorded it, and then immediately went back on tour. Um, but with Cleopatra, I think we felt like we needed to get out of the weight or the shadow of the first album success, which is a weird thing to kind of talk about or a weird thing to try to describe to somebody. It was like, well, what's the problem with success? But, you know, success can just do some weird things sometimes to different people. And I think that for us, we never really thought what happened with Hohe was going to happen. And it was just hard to kind of like go back to the drawing board, especially for me. I mean, I had a lot of, I can only speak on behalf of me, but going back to writing Cleopatra and album two was really difficult because yeah, you just felt like you were trying to get out from underneath the shadow from the success of album one. And I think that once we finished the first song, that was done called Ophelia. Once that was done, I was just like, Oh yeah, don't overthink it. Just, just write music that you get high off of, write music that you feel like is filling some void, write music that you love and care about and respect and feel sincere and let the, let the, you know, the rest of it wash away. When I was young, I should have known You know, lyrically, Wes, uh, Wes Schultz, the singer of the band, he writes all the lyrics, and I really loved where he went on. Um, I love what he does in all of his stuff, but I really loved where he went with album two with, you know, these allusions to Ophelia, the Shakespearean, you know, the tragedy of her drowning and some weird, you know... Right. You know, symbolism in that loosely, but also specifically in the lyrics. And then, yeah, the idea of Cleopatra was really cool, where um, his wife's friend... Um, and the, she's from the Republic of Georgia and um, she's a female taxi cab driver in the Republic of Georgia and she said to Wes she said you know the two best days of my life was the birth of my son and the day I got divorced and uh, you know when you tell an artist or when you, when you tell a lyricist or a songwriter 
some epic personal stuff like that, you got to be prepared that a song's going to be written about it. So that actually made it into one of the lyrics. Uh, the only gifts from my Lord was the birth and a divorce. Or He rhymes Lord and divorce somehow, and it's, I, I love it. It's brilliant. But uh, the only two gifts from my Lord was a son and a divorce, something like that. Honey, I love you. That's all she You know, when you start teetering towards your mid-30s like we are, these relationships end that you thought, oh, well, so-and-so, they'll just be together like me and my wife will be forever. And you're like, no, that's 50% of these marriages are going to end. And and sometimes, for a very good reason, you know, you sometimes need that second chance to start. And listening to Ophelia again, it reminded me of being in Shakespeare shows as a teenager and in college. I used to love being in uh, theater productions that were so epic. It felt like there were for us, like Shakespeare was really writing for the actors. Like the audience maybe would get some of it, but until you were inside the words, yeah. until you were inside the words every night, it's like you could never fully get it. Yeah. When you have uh, some of the Lumineers crew working with your piano, piano record, right? You have the violin and you actually brought in a orchestra from Macedonia. Did I read that correctly? Yeah, you did. Um, so, yeah, there was a lot of great players and um, people on this album that made it so beautiful. First and foremost, I couldn't have made the album without this guy named David Barron. Um, he's amazing. He's a producer, engineer, songwriter up in uh, Woodstock, New York. New York State, of course, and um, he's just fantastic. So he sort of helped me co-produce it, co-mix it, co-engineer it, which was like FaceTiming me with, you know, telling me to move the microphone a few centimeters here or there. And then um, the violinist of our band, Lauren Jacobson, she's on a couple tracks. Um, there was a cellist named Ruben Codelli that he's really prominent on, like, for example, Chili, that, that really prominent cello line. Um, he's a guy from New York City, and uh, he is just, he's out of this world. His ideas are really, really um, insane, and I love him for that. There was another cellist named Alex Waterman. Um, he was on a few of the songs. And then uh, there's this, the Fames Orchestra. They're from Macedonia. It's a 40-person orchestra. They're fantastic. And uh, David Barron, the engineer, he knows um, them very well. He knows the or he knows the conductor very well. Knows how to communicate with them quickly, you know. And David can sort of. I'm not like a classically trained musician. I can't read sheet music, so I would come up with ideas um, electronically using VST synths and MIDI data, and I'd give it to David, and he would chart it out and say, "Hey, you know, this part might be a little bit muddy with the bass. Do you want to do?" a second violin here instead of a cello and you know would listen to oh yeah let's try that and then for me though it just was like Goosebump City actually listening um, I was able to use this amazing software I forget the name of it but it was lossless audio listening live um, with the time difference we started at I want to say 6am Denver time like on the dot 6am which was probably the afternoon in Macedonia and uh, yeah it was incredible to like with Zoom, I could see them. They all had masks on, so it was very eerie, you know, very eerie to see all these people with masks playing wow. these songs. And uh, that was on three songs, so that was incredible. Yeah, that song, uh, An Air That Kills, um, I felt like I was dropping into a scene. Again, it's like deleted scenes from movies where you, you accidentally made the soundtrack. It felt like I was in that movie uh, Dunkirk. Oh, Nice. I've seen that, and I, I've seen that once. It was a, it was a cool movie. When all the all the boats are like coming to the rescue, you know these civilian sailors, and uh, when that orchestra comes in, like you're just like dropped into a scene. And I, I want to ask you again, what narrative did you hear in that song? I think for me, like that, even that title was very. Um, I think for me that title was even eerily coincidental for the times and air that kills right during a pandemic. And it honestly had nothing to do with COVID-19 or the pandemic. It was just a right. eerie coincidence. I actually heard the phrase 
It's from one of my favorite TV shows. It's like this BBC kind of murder mystery show. It takes place in 1960s in Oxford, England. And uh, it's called Lewis. Um, One of the guys references an heir that kills. And I guess it's an old poem or a line from an old poem. And, or it's the title of an old poem, something like that. But I just, I heard that and I rewound, you know, with my finger on the iPad, I rewound it and I was like, oh, what, what did he say? An air that kills? It's cast such like a vivid, wow, an, an air that kills. It was so beautiful and poetic. And I thought I want to make a song that encapsulates that. And I love, it's in C minor and I love the opening, just like the C is like, goes on for 12 bars too mm. long probably. But I wanted the listener to be like, what? the hell is this guy doing why is this you know when when is the change gonna happen and i think when the orchestra came in yeah i think in my mind it was just like all hell break all hell is breaking loose or something like the bombs are dropping the boats are coming the cavalry's coming in like just the mudslide the earthquake is happening i just wanted to make something that really how can i take this this moment and capitalize on these chords because the chords are very, very epic. It, like innately, right. they're just epic chords because it kind of goes up the C minor scale sort of and um, kind of the left hand continuously keeps going up. So I wanted to ca- try to capitalize on that, I think musically. And again, like, you know, at the beginning of our conversation, you talked about when there's no lyrics, when there's no words, how can you instill actual images? How can you instill cinematic imagery sans words and I think that was a huge challenge that you know how can I keep it interesting and I thought well if I'm not interested and it's going to be really hard for people to be interested in my music so doing something like that um, I've never done such a complex or visceral like orchestral idea and when I first you know wrote it on the computer I was worried that it was going to be too like too grandiose or too uh to something, you know, for lack of a better description, to something. And then I was like, this, this is sick. Like <laughs> I was like proud, you know, I was into it. I was proud of my own work. I was like, oh, I like this actually a lot. I've never done something like this with so many uh, orchestral pieces. And uh, I really grew attached to that one part. So... you could collaborate with a long dead composer or artist, who would it be? It'd be Beethoven. It would be Beethoven 110%. I think that when I listen to his piano sonatas, I mean, honestly, the world could just like, the world could just end and I would just be content. <laughs> like some of his sonatas, um, Moonlight Sonata and just some of these other pieces, um, they almost feel like the first pop songs or something. They're just so stunningly beautiful. What the left hand is doing in conjunction with the right hand and how, yeah, he's just, that guy was a maniac. Um, so I think we could do something cool together. Maybe I would play, I don't know if I'd play drums or maybe do a double piano action. Um, I speak a little German, so maybe we could talk kind of, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, I would. He was very strong-willed. Yeah, you know? it might be. He might be a difficult character to work with. Um, I'd probably let him do all like the most of the decision making, and I'd be like, "All right, Beethoven, that sounds good. <laughs> let's let's do that." Well, it's interesting because you have a very diverse set of influences, but also, you know, you wouldn't think listening to this piano record that when you started as a young musician, you were making beats for hip hop. Right. So you have the classical origin and the love for Beethoven and then this completely other direction. Also Metallica and all this other heavy stuff, the sort of dirge like quality on songs like uh, Dreams, for example. There's almost like a an enter Sandman moment where the when the string, the cello is kind of scratching like over the, the piano. Oh, man, that's so cool that you. uh I'm mentioning that specifically. Uh, that means a lot because I mean that means you really you listened for real and didn't just hear it, but or it really that resonated really with cool. you. So that means a lot. And uh, I think for me too, like thank you so much. I, I think also on like a song like Possessed was another one that was really like the depths of uh, you know 
some a, a dark Radiohead song or something, or like a, the depths of you. You mentioned dirge, yeah, just some sort of epically sad emotions somewhere buried in those those types of songs. But I think starting out on the drums, and regardless if it was rap or hip hop or Metallica, I think starting from a drum background and really trying to get good at rhythm, and then going to the piano in that order was really cool for me personally because I think it, you know, rhythm and then music. Um, and that was something I always wanted to do because when I learned the drums, I thought drums are cool, but they kind of, for me, like they, there was an end in sight when I sat at a piano, I was just like, oh, wow. I mean, you have bass and melody and chords and, you know, infinite, infinite possibilities. So the combination of those two love, love affairs in my life, um, was really fun. where you felt like you were in peak unexpected rock star heaven because like I always envy the drummer most when it's like a stadium show and the lights are on and everyone's going crazy and the drummer is like on this literal pedestal at times you know above the fray and you can almost like look down and observe the kingdom below (laughs) like what was that moment for you? So probably in the months of February and March 2020, we got to play about 25 or 30 shows with the Lumineers before COVID struck. And um, every show would start the same way where um, the lights would go out and I was uh, on a, a riser, a drum riser, and I would come up from the, literally come up from the ground. And then we start the song called Sleep on the Floor that starts with these really big drums, like almost like these caveman type drums. And then when the lights would go on, the lights would go on when uh, Wes would hit the first guitar chord, and then everybody starts screaming. And um, yeah, I just got goosebumps just thinking about it. It's a pretty epic moment when that's, you know, some of these places were were really big too for us. They were like ten, twelve, fourteen thousand uh, type arenas, and uh, uh-huh. it was just really, really cool. So, but then you go home and you're with your two-year-old who doesn't give a crap what you do or who you are and it's the most humbling experience in the entire universe so <laughs> forget what father Brennan said we were not born in sin leave a note on your bed let your mother know you I always told my wife that I could understand why great musicians got addicted to like heavy drugs because if you actually have that moment of fleeting godliness like when you're on this huge stage and then you have to like go load up your car and go to the grocery store you're like this how how is my brain supposed to read it's definitely an addiction in our high to adjust to that and yeah it's so it's so compelling that you're like how does that high not happen you like you have to have that high happen more than just the hour that you're on stage because do you remember a place called the living room in new york city i think it's gone now yeah um i think it was a smaller club i mean i think it was like the i think the maximum capacity was maybe 150 probably more like 125 and uh we played there we did we had a residency there in march probably about eight or nine years ago and I, I feel like that that high that I felt playing in that small room was just as high though. It's like it's you know it's, I think we all feel right. it when we go on stage. It's like it's something that we're crazy enough to believe that 
this is a good decision. Let's let's choose drum, uh, let's choose music as a as a way of life. Yeah. And then you actually, you know, once the show starts, it's, it's such a an immense high and um yeah. I miss it. <laughs> well, you guys were supposed to play Coors Field in Denver, right? Yeah, that would have been our first that would have been our first uh bona fide like headlining stadium show. And it was supposed to be a Coors Field, the baseball stadium in Denver, and that would have been incredible. Um, didn't happen. Hope, hope it on a reschedule. But yeah, the, that's sort of like one of these pinch me moments. I mean, when I moved, when we moved to Denver about ten years ago, um, my sort of holy grail place was to play Red Rocks, and I used to actually look at a photo of Red Rocks every uh-huh. morning because I was a busboy at the sushi restaurant called the Sushi Den in Denver, and I was this busboy and. Um, I love this idea of like, it was almost cheesy, like when you'd say it out loud, but it was this idea of like a dream or vision board and you'd mm. look at something. So if you want money, you look at money. If you want car, I don't know, whatever you're into. And if, you know, I would look at this thing, this photo I had of Red Rocks and I would look at it every day in the morning and just like, wow, I'd really love to play that. So I remember the first time we got that call, to, hey, do you guys want to play? The first time we got to play, it was we opened up for the band Cake, and that was like absolutely surreal and awesome. Yeah, it's like you get to you get to go to Red Rocks, you get the sound check on that stage, you get to play an opening forty five minute slot, and you get to watch Cake from backstage. Yeah, it was awesome, man. It was like you know just total dream come true. And then the first time we got to headline it, it was yeah, it was just beyond epic and just so much. Uh, it actually felt like like literally like that moment of like, yes, this dream is coming true and uh, very surreal. And I just remember that year, probably for a few years of my life, constantly being like, yeah, I know. It's so crazy. Yeah, I know. It's so surreal. Yeah, I know. It's nuts. And uh, it truly was. It's like a very special time that only happens once, um, if it ever happens. And it just was like, again, I'm saying it was a crazy time. <laughs> It would have been funny if you were on the mic at Red Rocks and being like, I just want to give a shout out to the sushi restaurant. Yeah. Everyone who uh, was nice to me in the dishwashing room. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for supporting me. How you like me now? No, I'm just kidding. If you were not playing music, what other job do you think you'd be doing right now? I was really attracted to sociology. Uh, that was my major in college. I really loved sociology. I love the, I, I love, I guess, naturally looking at society and from a macro perspective, I love, you know, the function, the functionality of like how things work together or don't work together for that matter and um, how it all collides. So probably something with sociology. Um I think options are sort of limited though. I think it's either like you're a social worker or you teach sociology probably would have opted to teach it. Um, I don't know though. So, something with sociology, I, I think. What did your folks do? So my mom was a nursery school teacher and then my dad was worked in like shipping and receiving. So um, at a, like a warehouse and just got boxes and yeah, in the, the shipping and receiving department for this, uh, for this company, um, in, in New Jersey. Yeah. Did they have reservations of you really pursuing music full time or were they fully on board? I think they were fully on board. I think that they saw some promise. I think every mother and every, you know, every parent, um, sees promise in their kids, but hopefully it's not false. Like, Oh, honey, you're so good at that. And then the, the parent actually thinks they suck at it. I think that they actually thought, hey, he seems like half decent at this, maybe. But, you know, my dad was very practical too and pragmatic. He was like, you know, you gotta you gotta get a degree and you gotta finish school and then, you know, oh, you wanna move to Denver, Colorado and live on your own and do be in a band. Well, what are you gonna do for money out there? And you know, you got to have X amount of dollars in your bank account before you move out there. So, um, and that was, you know, that was smart though, to instill it into me. That was smart that they did a great job of instilling into me the value of a dollar, the value of working. Mm. You know, I started working at maybe a relatively normal age. I was like 14, probably working at like a summer job at a, at the municipal pool in Ramsey, New Jersey. And, uh, yeah, I think, I think it was just like, 
you know, follow your dreams, but try to do it as much as you can. Um, and yeah, move to Denver. That's okay. But just, uh, keep your head on straight, I guess. I don't know, but they, they, they were really supportive. It made it, it made it really easy. It wasn't like this epic, like, I'll show you dad. And like, I'll go to Denver. <laughs> like I'll show you guys, you know, it was not like, like it is portrayed sometimes in the movies. Um, which is, I know that's a real thing too. I mean, as, as a parent now, I'd be mortified if my son said <laughs> he wanted to do music for a living. Um, time will tell. We'll see. I, I just hope he does something with animals or something just like so far from music just so I can be interested in it too because right. I know too much about the music industry maybe. But we'll see. Well, we'll see what path uh, finds him and what, yeah, what he finds. Well, it's really beautiful when you're able to bring a song like Nearsighted off your new record um, from your own history where you take a guitar part from when you were 21 years old living in London, you know, for the first time and you are able to sort of preserve that moment, part of your life that's crystallized and bring it into who you are now and bring that guitar track into that song, which I thought was really cool. And again, it's like, these field recordings from your own history. I'm glad you, you know, are asking me about that. For those of you that don't know, um, there's a song on this album called Nearsighted, and the the guitar is about 13 years old, and I came back from a pub. I was living in Kingston-upon-Thames in, in England at the time, which is kind of near London, and uh, came back from the pub after a few drinks, and picked up my guitar, which at the time was alternately tuned. Instead of E-A-D-G-B-E, it was F-A-C-G-C-E. So the song is actually quite easy to play because of the open tuning. It requires almost no skill or talent. But I found these chords and just started plucking them. And the microphone I had in the room was the little hole in my laptop. And that's how that, that's the actual, like, those are the, that's the stem, you know, the stems, the, the tracks of the recording is that guitar and that that has to be the oldest I think song both in like the songwriting and in actual artifact um, you know but that was really cool to like bring that to life and you know I think the classic in my opinion the classic musicians mistake is like oh I love that but it's old, I'm going to re-record it and make it better. And I've just, myself, I've fallen victim to that more times than I'd care to admit. And um, I just thought, I like that. I'm going to use that. And let's see, let's see what it does. So yeah, I love that song. What would you tell yourself now if you could talk to your 21-year-old self? Yeah, slow down and stop trying to, you know, take take appreciation and try to be more present. I think between 20 and 30 in my life, it was kind of a blur just in terms of so much ambition and just constantly trying to get better at things and in music and trying to which I think made me a better musician, but um, I think I could have appreciated it more along the way, perhaps. I don't know if I'm capable of doing that sometimes. It's a fault, I'd say. But yeah, slow down and, and appreciate it more. awesome big thanks to jeremiah freights for talking to me all the way from italy uh you can find his newest record piano piano wherever albums are sold you can get it on vinyl please 
support your favorite musicians by actually buying their music. Or you can listen to his band, The Lumineers, which you probably already have. Simply go to thelumineers.com. Don't go to lumineers.com. It is actually a dental implant company, uh, which would be weird if those two things were connected. But thelumineers.com, you can get their newest record, which is just called Three. I just found this cool memory, actually, the other day. Uh, if you go to our mothership, thebluegrasssituation.com, you'll see that I reviewed their nightclub show here in L.A. I believe it was 2013 at the Fonda Theater. They had just started to really blow up, and it's a special memory of mine. I snuck in, it was sold out, and everyone was fired up to see them for the first time. Some bands think they're living the dream. Those guys are actually doing it, and I'm glad I could talk to Jeremiah about it. If you would like to make my dream come true, you can donate to this podcast, ZNLupitan at Gmail on PayPal, and leave us a kind review on iTunes and share it with your friends. As always, this podcast is written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Zach Lupitan, and we are part of the BGS Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we will have new episodes, including a new episode I just recorded today with shovels and rope. So we'll see you very soon, and I hope you stay creative and stay safe, and we'll see you on the trail. Bye.